If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Uh, We're going to cover verses 11 through 26 this morning. You'll find Acts 3 on page 911 in the Bibles that we have provided under the seats in front of you. Um, At this church, we, we believe that it's right for us to preach through books of the Bible, um, there's all kinds of reasons for that. Uh, the, the main reason is that we believe that God, if he has spoken, we need to listen. And that when we listen to what he has said, blessing comes to us. And so we don't want our people to miss any blessing. Uh, but another good thing that you may not think much about, about us just going from passage to passage, is it challenges your preacher. So when I came to this passage this, this week, there were things in this passage that I already knew I loved. There were, there were things that I knew would be great to talk about. But that's not the job of a preacher, just to find cool things or things that I like. The task of the preacher is to study the Word and try to understand what is God saying and why is he doing it this way. That's, a, that's hard work. I appreciate your prayers for me. Um, and this passage was one of those passages that was hard on that level to figure out why is this passage coming to us this way. Uh, I think the Lord has given an answer. Um, and so I, I think this, this passage has become more precious to me than, than, than it was at the beginning of the week. Um, but here, here is part of what we will see in this series, in the book of Acts called Spread the Word. What Christ in heaven is doing is spreading the word specifically of repentance and forgiveness to all nations, starting from Jerusalem. And we see that very word going out in this passage, and it is a good word. I don't know what kind of blessing you you want God to give you, but he defines blessing as this, of you hearing that you need to repent and you hearing that you can be forgiven. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Lord Jesus, you are, as we've just sung, our hope is in your holding. And you holding us. Your grip is so strong. And you are so loving. We pray that you would use your word. As you reign in heaven right now, you would use it to the same impact and results that we see you using it in throughout the book of Acts. That when your word goes out, your people are strengthened and multiplied in their faith and multiplied in their number. We pray, God, that you would use your word. Lord Jesus, use your word right now to strengthen us in the faith. To cause us to happily be in your hold. And to have great hope because of your love. Expose this to us, God, we pray. Fill these people and me with your spirit. And cause your word to fall upon hearts that believe. We ask this in 
your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me. Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26 is the word of Christ. It is true, and the Spirit is speaking this to you. This is what you need to hear this morning, because Christ loves you. Acts chapter 3, verse 11. While he, that is the main man who was born lame, that has now been healed, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now... Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You may be seated. This whole passage, remember Jesus when he... Is, is exalted in heaven, sends out His witnesses to proclaim repentance and forgiveness to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Here is this playing out. 
This is beginning from Jerusalem. God sends Jesus to the Jews first, calling them to repent, calling them, inviting them to be forgiven. This whole passage is a comparison of how God's people treat Jesus in comparison to how God treats their own God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our forefathers, my brothers, men of Israel, can you not see the difference in the way that you treat Jesus compared to the way that God treats Jesus? What I want you to see this morning from our passage is if you want to know what is wrong with everyone alive, then you should look first at what is wrong with the few who are closest to God. If the people who are closest to God have a problem, the people of Israel, if they have a problem, that will be the sign of what is the root of the problem for all the rest of the world. If there's something even wrong with the people who are closest to God, That can tell us a lot about what's wrong with us. Our passage gives an important correction to this world and this generation. This world and our generation will tell you that the greatest problem in humanity is a low self-esteem. The gospel of the day is do not let anyone tell you that you are wrong. Don't let anyone make you feel bad for what you like. I'm not saying that we don't have a problem with where we find our worth, we do. But that is not the great problem in humanity. Even the Jews in this day need to repent and to be forgiven. And this passage tells us what they need to be forgiven of, and it's not low esteem. Not low self-esteem anyway. The gospel truth that this passage teaches is that we should not lightly esteem who God highly exalts. This is a comparison of how they have lightly esteemed, regarded, treated the one who God highly exalts. The sin that you need forgiveness from the most. The sin at the heart of every other lesser sin. What leads to every sin. The wickedness that we need to turn from most is, according to this passage, treating Jesus more lightly than God does. So, we'll see this point in two Halves. The first half is verses 11 through 16, where Peter preaches to the Jews and says, you don't even know his name. You don't even know his name. Who God highly exalted. Look in verses 11 and 12. Peter is answering the question, how did this happen? Verse 2, this man, 
had been born lame. He was crippled and he was dropped off at the temple gate to ask for alms, for money to to eat. And he was dropped off there that morning just like always. But then by verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3, like never before, the crowd sees this crippled man who they have always known as being lame. He's now leaping and they were, we were told, filled with amazement and wonder at what had happened to him. And then we get to verses 11 and 12. The crowd who sees the man they recognize, they run to him. As he's hanging off of Peter and John, and they're staring at the apostles as if they healed this man who's 40 years, who's more than 40 years old, we're told in chapter 4, who had been crippled for more than 40 years, that the apostles did this by their own power. There's some power in there or, or some piety or holiness in them. And our passage is Peter stepping up and correcting their misunderstanding. Peter is saying, why you should not be surprised by this healing? He's explaining why we shouldn't be surprised. They shouldn't be surprised. And he's explaining where the power to heal comes from. And the answer to the why and the where is a who. So verses 13 through 16, how did this happen? The answer is, who did this? Who did this? And Peter starts by saying, it's the one, your God, our God, people of Israel, our God. It's the one, your God, glorified. Who did this? And he goes on to say, it's the same one you crucified. Again, there's a comparison of how God esteems Jesus and how the Jews esteem Jesus. Verse 12, men of Israel. Verse 13, God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I want you to know that your God, you're here in the temple, your God empowered this man's healer. Your God the one you are proclaiming, has glorified His servant. And when we hear the words, He glorified or He exalted His servant, we should hear the words that Justin just read to us. The very first words from Isaiah 52, verse 13. God goes on to say, My servant will be glorified after my enemies do not esteem Him. I hope you're getting where Peter's going. When he says God has glorified his servant, they should be thinking that God said, I will glorify my servant after my enemies do not esteem him. And then he explains what they did to the servant. And they are surely more shocked by what, by who Peter reveals God's servant to be. They have to be more shocked by that than they were surprised by this lame leaper. I remember back in seminary, I was sitting in church one day and I was listening to this 
wonderful sermon by one of my professors, Dr. Betts. But I was discouraged because that day I had just happened to choose to sit, and apparently the, the teenagers in that church sat all in the same area. This is not a, a, a dig on teenagers. I'm just digging on these teenagers. Um, but I, I was sitting there. I was trying to listen to this wonderful sermon from God's Word. And, and there was this group of teens around me who were passing notes to one another, and they, they seemed to have one guy in particular who was causing all the distractions. And I got so fed up, at the end of the service, I went up to him and I said, look, you're not here to distract people from worshiping God. And that's something I I do teach to my children. I I think it's a good thing to understand. We're not here for us. We're not here to, even if we're not interested, we're not here to distract other people from worshiping God. And And the kid was clearly ashamed when I said this. And I And then I left him and I walked up to the preacher because I wanted to encourage him and thank him for the word. I said, thank you, Dr. Betts, for this word. It it really helped me in these ways. And afterward, I I went up to a youth leader because I wanted to get someone involved who's really involved in this this boy's life. And when I did that, he told me that the name of this boy was Betts. It was the son of the preacher. And I had no idea that as I'm eager to go encourage the father, that the one that he esteems, I had just really discouraged. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I think I was right in saying something to him. <laughs> I think I was right in the way that I felt about it. But I don't think I, I was gentle. I don't think I was as patient or as wise with him. And so later I apologized to him. God says, I will glorify my servant after my enemies do not esteem him. And the shock comes that though they thought they were honoring God by killing Jesus on the cross. The reality that Peter then tells them is when you did that, that was the culmination of all the ways that you have turned away from God. You have rejected his own son. You've got to be absolutely floored. More than I was floored by learning what I learned that day. Verse 13, Peter says, even when Pontius Pilate, that Roman governor, was interrogating Jesus and Pilate as a just judge, at that point anyway, he realized that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death and he tried, he tried to release the innocent man to you Jews. Verse 14, you are so wicked that you told Pilate that you didn't want the holy and righteous one. You said, give us the murderer. Let the murderer be set loose among us because we don't want the one who's holy. We don't want the one who's righteous. Sin has so blinded you who think you are righteous that you couldn't even see that Jesus is the God who gives you life. Your very breath depends upon him. And you wanted the murderer and then you killed. You see all the irony. You want a murderer and you killed your own life giver. Who did this? You want to know why this happened, men of Israel? The one you crucified is the one God glorified. And he has overturned all your wickedness in raising him from the dead. What he's telling them is though they were full of confidence that they, apart from all the world, were the righteous and holy people of God, they learned they are, their whole posture of life is directed against God. They're totally blind. 
Because they do not esteem the one that God exalts. And God raised Jesus from the dead saying, what you said, Jesus, is true. You are my son. You are my king. You are innocent. You do not deserve death. God vindicated Jesus after the crowd. This crowd, at least Peter is is saying they share in the responsibility of the crowd who cried out, kill him. God says he is the author of life. Get up. And so this is the logic of the Apostle Peter. Listen, if you killed God's servant, then you are your own God's enemy. I will glorify my servant after my enemies do not esteem him. They then learn, we're not the innocent ones. We are the enemies. They've been wondering... And they've been waiting. And Peter finally gives them the clear answer in verse 16. How is it that the lame leaps before them? The name of Jesus did this miracle. Peter does not take any credit for himself. He doesn't want them confused in any way. He says, we were able to heal not because we are pious or holy, not because there's any power in us, but because of the power and the piety of the one we were relying upon for the healing. Peter says, I had faith in the name of Jesus. That's how he stands before you well. Look back in verse 6. Look back in verse 6 when Peter actually does heal. He does it in the name of Jesus. Jesus. What he's saying is he had faith in the name. And for that, we need to understand that in the Bible, names stand for the person. The name of the person is a representation of the person. And so when Peter says that they had faith in the name of Jesus, what Peter is saying is, I didn't do it. I'm not powerful. I'm not holy. I can't do that. Jesus is powerful. He is holy. I had faith in Jesus. I was trusting in Jesus. Peter trusted that Jesus, when Peter saw the lame, he trusted that Jesus wanted to make that lame man leap. And so he says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Listen, there's a very important lesson here for us this morning. If you do not esteem the one God exalts in the way that God esteems him, then you are not a Christian. Whether you esteem Jesus depends on whether you can see him for who he truly is. And when Peter saw the lame man, he recognized Jesus is the healer. And that recognition kicked in. And then Peter esteemed Jesus the way that that God esteems Jesus because God said, did he not? By his wounds, we are healed. God said that His servant would 
bear, carry our griefs and carry our sorrows. And on the cross, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, our sins, and he was wounded for our healing. And just like Adam and Eve, whenever they took the the forbidden fruit and God said, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. They died spiritually first. And that spiritual death led to a physical death. The same thing happens with our healing. We are healed spiritually first. That's the main reason Jesus is dying on the cross is to heal us of our spiritual death and our sin. But that will have physical ramifications and consequences. So when you view the cross, Christian, it is not just Jesus being punished for our sins. It is. And it's mainly that. But the cross is also Jesus being wounded so that He will one day make us whole. So that He can heal us of all the ways that sin has wounded us. And so there's an illustration here in a man who is born with a handicap. And in order to show us all that Jesus is doing for us, the man is healed. Which will happen for every Christian eventually. We will be made whole. And it won't be because of anything other than the cross. By the wounds that that Christ bore on the cross. God glorified Jesus, not just to give us an inward peace, and He did it mainly to give us an inward peace, but not only to give us an inward peace. God glorified Jesus to make us whole. That's why Peter explains the healing by talking about the wounding of Jesus. The healing of the man when he starts explaining how the healing happened, he starts talking about the wounding of Jesus on the cross because they're connected. This man is perfectly healthy because we believe that the lamb heals the lame. He's after all of the healing. Again, this may not happen in our lifetime. This does not mean that we can just say in the name of Jesus, let your cancer be gone or, or whatever, and then it just go. No, in these early days, as Peter is showing us all that we should understand about what Christ has done for us on the cross, he's showing us early on what's going to happen. And this lame man is a picture of what will happen to all believers. But perfect health forever waits until Christ restores all things. And yet again, It will only be because of his wounds. We will be whole. So, do not lightly esteem who God highly exalts. Peter's first half of the sermon, he says to this group of God's people, you don't even know his name. In the second part of the sermon, in verses 17 through 26, he says, you don't even know his name though everyone told you so. Everyone that God has sent to you has said the same thing. So, verses 17 and 18, He says to them, you should have known. You should have known. Peter says in verse 17, you and your rulers acted in ignorance. What he's saying is whenever the Sanhedrin 
delivered Jesus over to the Roman authorities, whenever the crowd was offered a chance to get Jesus back off the, off the, off the hook and not go to the cross, whenever the crowd decided, they demanded, they denied Pilate offering Jesus and they demanded the crucifixion. When they did that, they weren't conscious. They weren't aware. This is God's son. And we're, we're trying to dishonor God by crucifying his son. So Peter is saying in verse 17, I will say this for you. You were acting in ignorance. But so that we, they, and we would not <laughs> conclude the wrong thing about ignorance. Uh, he says more than that in verse 18. You may think ignorance is your defense. That's not your one defense, is ignorance. And he makes that clear. Look at verse 18. Two things about ignorance. Number one, Peter says, you are, were ignorant That does not mean you were uninformed. You should have known. Verse 18, all the prophets, every single man that God had sent said that your Savior would suffer at the hands of God's enemies. So you should have known not to kill the one who looks identical to Every description that God gave that that man would be like. You should have seen him and you shouldn't have been the one to kill him. So listen, ignorance about who Jesus is, is not bliss. Don't ever, ever, ever take the attitude that just because you prayed some prayer, you don't have to devote your life to esteeming and knowing the Lord Jesus. Don't be fine with, with not figuring out what is it that God means when he says this about Jesus. Don't be fine. Ignorance is not bliss. It is blatant ignoring. That's what ignorance is. It is ignoring what God has blatantly said. Every word that God has spoken is about his son. You should have known. And so he says, secondly, you were ignorant when you did this. I'm not saying you're innocent. Because, verses 19 through 21, what does he go on to say right after saying they're ignorant? You better repent. So you should have known, and now that you do know, you should turn. Listen to me. Listen to me. When I, when I look at the Jews in this day, I think of the people of Graham. If you don't esteem Jesus, if your heart disagrees with all the fuss God makes about His Son, If your heart's aim in life is to bring attention and glory to the Lord Jesus, if your heart is not aimed at that with all of your life, I want you to consider how foolish you are. Because you are making light of the one that God is determined to make heavy. 
God will not accept your ignorance of what He is doing as some excuse. He will not accept that you don't understand what He has said as if that will exonerate you and free you from guilt. He doesn't hear. He won't for you or me. Ignorance is something. It's the something that separates us from Satan. Satan knew who the Son of God was. Satan knew what was at stake. Satan was doing all of those things intentionally. But ignorance does not bring us to God. Only repentance will. Listen, friends. Realize why God is highly exalting Jesus. Why you should esteem the one that you may have to this moment ignored. It's because when Jesus was raised from the dead, He commanded His witnesses. This is what I want from my witnesses. I want you to go and proclaim repentance and forgiveness to all nations. And what that means is when Peter makes the first offer to the Jews, that it then applies to you and me as well. He says to them, if you make one turn, then three vats will come your way. One turn, three vats. Three results from the one turn. Number one, verse 19, your sins will be blotted out. The Jews at the bottom of the cross were saying he cannot save anyone if he does not save himself. God said, when my servant is hanging on the cross, he will intercede for the ignorant. And what do we hear Jesus saying on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. In our day, we use a kind of ink whenever we're writing something. That ink has acid in it that makes the ink bite into the paper so that it sticks and stays on the paper so that it becomes permanent. Well, in Jesus' day, ink did not have acid. And so you could take a sponge and you could blot out what was written. You could wipe away all the signs on the record. And this is what Jesus is offering to those who killed him. Every sin that you have committed is a symptom of lightly esteeming the Lord. But if you turn from going your own way, if you turn back to God by esteeming the Lord Jesus, that's how you turn back to God, it's esteeming the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, I will wipe your record of sins totally clean. So that, listen to the gospel, there will be no evidence anymore that you killed Jesus. Jesus will not punish you. You will have only his love and his grace and his kindness. Everyone here should hear this sermon and should turn from sin and turn from every way that you do not esteem Christ and receive full Forgiveness for every sin, as exemplified in the greatest sin of killing Christ himself.
That's the first that that comes from the one turn. There's two more that's. That the Lord himself will refresh you. If you turn from your sins, the Lord himself will refresh you. In other words, you will immediately start experiencing that peace. You will be on your way toward that wholeness. You will be starting to be refreshed. And then in verses 20 and 21, God will send one day, he will send your Savior back to earth and he will come for you. And, and he will restore everything that was lost by sin. You should have known. You should turn. He will forgive. And then in verses 22 through 26, you should know. You should know. There are certain things you should know now. Verses 22 through 26. This week, you see it all over Facebook. This country is rightly esteeming. They are rightly esteeming. Rightly regarding and honoring that savior of the Colorado high school shooting. It is right to esteem and regard and honor Kendrick Castillo, who laid down his life for the many, so that the people who were saved by him, one quote is, he gave us all enough time to run across the room to escape. And then his father was interviewed. And what did his father say about his son's sacrifice? He said, quote, I want people to know about him. You can faithfully attend the temple, Acts 3. And at the same time, you can be totally opposed to God. You can attend church. You can call yourself a Christian. You can get baptized and at the same time be completely on the opposite side of everything God is doing. You can be impressed by Jesus' power at work in other people's lives and also ignore his position. No one's deepest problem is low self-esteem. Everyone's deepest problem is low esteem of the Savior. It is right to esteem Kendrick Castillo. How much more right, how much more esteem do you and I, who have been saved eternally by the Son of God through His blood and His death, how much more should we be filling our Facebook, filling our words, filling the ears of everyone who will listen to us with no end to the esteem of who Christ is. And if we don't have that as our object in life, friend, I want to I question, have you been saved or not? The girl who knows he just laid down his life or I would be dead says about this boy, Castillo, he gave his life so I could escape. I want to tell you about it. Lightly esteeming the one God exalts is the definition of wickedness in God's book. That's the word that's used in our passage. He says, God, in my sermon, is sending Christ to you to turn you from wickedness. 
Because you've turned away from God. How? How? How were they wicked? Because they didn't esteem his son. Listen. You, if you fill your life with, well, at least I don't drink. At least I don't fornicate. At least I don't cheat on my spouse. And you feel good about yourself. And your moral life. But you think very little of Jesus. And the sins you actually commit. Lightly esteeming the one who God exalts is God's definition of wickedness. Verses 22 and 23. So God, Peter says, God esteems Jesus as the new Moses. And therefore you must listen to him. Look in verses 22 and 23. Moses said back in Deuteronomy 18, God is going to raise up another prophet who is like me and everyone who listens to him will be saved, and whoever does not listen to every word he says will be destroyed. Peter is saying to these people who know who Moses is, and says, when we listened to Moses, we got out of Egypt. And he's saying, forget Egypt. Forget Moses. If you listen to Jesus, you're getting out of wickedness. You're getting out of the hell that your wickedness will lead to. And what he's saying to us is the primary way that we esteem, the main instrument of our esteem is our ears. Do you obey Christ and what he says? Or do you argue? Or do you hear his clear teaching and then justify why that doesn't happen to you, that, that doesn't apply to me? You'll be destroyed. Listen to him. He's plainly speaking. Do you fight to understand it? Delay may be the primary way we do not esteem Him. We hear Him and we say, one day in life I'll do that. I still got time. Peter's saying, you'll be destroyed. Or you can listen to Him who says you must repent. You can listen to Him who says I will forgive. Listen to Jesus. You must repent. You must repent. Not just you must say things. Say they're wrong. You must turn. Turn away and go in a different direction. You must do this. So his message that he wants to proclaim to all the nations is not just one of forgiveness. Those who are forgiven never treat their sin lightly. Because when you treat your sin lightly, you lightly esteem Jesus. Because He died for sins. Repent. Your heart toward every sin should be, this is not small. It killed my Savior. Turn. Listen, or you'll be destroyed. Listen, you must Repent and listen to him who says, I will forgive. His message is not just repent. If you think your sin is too big for him to forgive, if you think you've committed that sin too many times for him to forgive, then you are esteeming the Lord Jesus too lightly. 
Beloved, Jesus means what he said. Believe him who said, I will blot all evidence of all of your sin totally away. I will not have any record of your guilt because I took it all. But then in verses 25 and 26, Peter tells us that God esteems Jesus as the seed of Abraham. And so he says, go to him for God's blessing. Listen, ever since the beginning of Genesis, when God takes this fallen world and says, I'm picking out this one man, Abraham, and his promised children, and I'm going to bless him. And whoever blesses him is going to be blessed by him. And and the whole world is going to be blessed through this one man, Abraham. Ever since then, we've probably wondered, what is the blessing of Abraham? We look at the blessings that Abraham received. We might think, well, he was a wealthy man, or, or he, was, he was healthy, and uh, he lived a, to a ripe old age. And people might be thinking, well, I want what God is going to bless the world with. What is the one blessing that God is going to give through the seed, the son of Abraham? Our passage tells us what the blessing is. Christ will not leave you in what wounds you. That's the blessing that God gives. He turns us from wickedness. That's the blessing that we're all waiting for. Because wickedness is the explanation of every wound. Being away from God is the explanation of death. And Christ comes to bless the whole world, starting with the Jews. He gives a broken and fallen world real blessing. He sends His Son. He sends His Son to save by turning us away from wickedness. And so He says in verse 25, Listen, people of Israel, you, you think you're a son of the prophets because the prophets came to your people. Uh, you, you, you think you're a son of Abraham because you've got the blood of Abraham running in your veins. That's not what makes you a son of the prophets. That's not what makes you a child of the covenant. And listen, church, that's not what makes, gives proof that you are in a relationship with God just because you've heard prophecy. Just because you say you believe what the prophets say. Just because you believe you're in a covenant with Him. It's not who your parents are that show us that w- whether we have a relationship with God. It is all 100% down to whether we esteem Jesus. He alone brings us into a relationship with God. He, turning to Him, is the way Peter has defined turning back to God. Think about this. The God who said, I will not give my glory to another says, and he's not changing his mind, he says, I glorify Jesus. Just think about that. Are you treating God's Son the way God wants you to? Because everything depends on that. Do not lightly esteem who God highly exalts. Father in heaven, we pray that you would 
Give us your spirit that we might believe these words with real faith and might follow Christ. Lord Jesus, you are so good. You call us to repent. You call us to turn from the very thing that's killing us. Oh God, may we not cherish what kills us. And we may, may we not ignore the author of life either. Would you make your call to repent powerful? Would you make your promise of forgiveness powerful? Help us to walk in you, our great Savior. We ask this in your name. Now we're turning to a sacred meal, the Lord's Supper, uh, where we have an opportunity to do more than just listen, but to take and eat. Remember when, um, in Genesis 3, when this world fell into brokenness, the words take and eat are there as well. They took of the forbidden fruit, and they ate the forbidden fruit. And so Jesus says to his people, so that you understand that my blood overturns and restores all of that, he says, take, eat, this is my body, and drink, this is my blood shed for the sins of my people. So if that's you, what I trust is that you are a sinner And you understand that. And you're not arguing that. But it also means that you recognize that your only hope for salvation is through forgiveness in Christ. And you're clinging to that. And you're not just claiming forgiveness. You're also living a life of repentance. So if you are a believer in Christ, then that means you are someone who is reconciling with Him. You are convicted of your sins and you're confessing those sins to Him. And you also are treating your sins that you commit against other people the way that he wants you to treat them, which is not make light of it, but you are sorrowful over your sins and you confess those sins with people and you're reconciling with those you've hurt, if that is you, that's a description of a Christian. So I want to encourage you that when the men come forward and pass out these elements, that you would take this bread and this cup and that you would, when we take it together, you would remember what Christ did to give you life. Men, if you're serving uh, the supper, please come forward. If, if that is not a description of you, if you are not living a life of turning from your sin and back to God, if you're not living a life of reconciling with other believers, then let the, this cup pass and this bread pass and, and, and instead be thinking about what Christ offers to you. Turn back to God and turn to Christ and He will save you. Men, you can... Hand out the elements.